So you're a professor in the comm department at UCSB. That's right. Perfect. Uh, do you want to go ahead and talk a little bit about your background? Sure. Okay. So my background is that I was born and raised on a farm in Iowa, um, a farm that had you know all kinds of crops and and uh, cattle and hogs and chickens and and the whole shebang. Uh, it was a regular farm. Uh, Great way to start life. Um, unfortunately, my father passed away when I was uh, 11. And uh, so we moved off the farm not too long thereafter, moved into the to the big town of 300 people, uh, which was the size of town I grew up in. But you know, it was a very small rural community. And so everybody knew everyone else. There were 20 people in my grade. And, um, you know, in a rural situation, we don't really think so much about, or we didn't never talked about going to college. It was just not a thing. And if I look back at you know some of the my classmates, hardly any of them went to college because they just didn't really think about it. Most of the women would do something like go to work in one of those you know small little businesses as an administrative assistant of some sort the the guys would become farmers and that was that was life and so the thought of going to college was just not something that people really thought of and i think that in many respects that's still the way it is in rural america um but my mother um moved us to Arizona when I was a teenager, when I was 15 years old, and uh, went to a much, much bigger school. I think there were 3,000 students in my school when I moved to Arizona. And of course, I got lost and cried the first day because it was, it was such an intimidating experience. Um, but it, it really you know, changed my life in a lot of ways because I got much more exposed to different things, but I still had not really given much thought to going to college. I was a good student. Uh, I was fortunate to have gotten a, into a close group of friends who were good students. And so, you know, I became, I was a good student, um, but I hadn't really thought about going to college. And to be perfectly honest, I would have had no idea about how to go about doing it. Um, my mother has a third grade education. Uh, nobody in my family went to college. I think just as many people did not finish high school as did in my family. And so the, the idea of even how to apply to school would have been just something I never would have thought of. Um, but I was at school one day and the people from Arizona State University came around with their little applications and said, would you like to complete an application to potentially come to school at, at ASU? And so I did, just like my friend did. And lo and behold, um, I got accepted at, at ASU. And that was um, that was wonderful, obviously quite quite a, a blessing for me, but I started school as a no-preference major. I had not a clue as to what I was going to study, um, but I was uh, mentioning before our interview that um, back then, there, there was no such thing as a first-generation college student. We, it was never a, a, a word or, or anything I would have ever thought of. And there wasn't any special guidance or anything you got. Um, there weren't any orientations, at least none that I can remember. But I remember, you know, going onto campus and trying to get there a little extra early and trying to figure out where my classes were and trying to figure out how to how to make it through. But I had no I had no guidance about, you know, how to how to navigate the university system. 
Um, I didn't even know I could get health insurance on campus. I had no idea. I, I had always thought that was for the, the rich kids to be able to have that. So I never had that. And I, you know, um, things like applying for financial aid, I had no idea how to do that or that you could do that. And it wasn't until my last year at ASU that I learned that I was eligible for Pell Grants. I had no idea because no one had ever suggested it to me. And fortunately, I got some in my last year, but probably could have the whole way, but I never knew that. Um, but so, you know, how did I, I finally get into a major? I was taking Psychology 101 in the, my fall, in my fall semester, and I happened to sit next to a fellow uh, and asked him where the where the Coke machine was, and he and he took me out and showed me where it was and came back and so we started having conversations and he asked me what my major was and I told him no preference major and he says ah oh, you really ought to be a business major you really ought to be a business major and I said okay that sounds fine <laughs> and so anyway I ended up becoming a business major because I met this friend of mine named Todd he was a year ahead of me and um he said, you know, you really ought to go to this uh, Pi Sigma Epsilon organization, which was a marketing fraternity. And he says, you'd, you'd love it. I'm a member of it. You'd really enjoy it. So I went to that and started going to Pi Sigma Epsilon meetings. And lo and behold, I fell in love with marketing. I never would have gotten into marketing had I not met this person in my class and he, and he had been influential. And uh, so that's that's kind of how I ended up in that major. I often think I love history. So I probably would have maybe gone into history had I not met Todd. But at the time I didn't do that because I just wasn't sure how to parlay that into an actual career. So I got really lucky. Um, when I got out of school, I took a couple of jobs. I was selling advertising for a short while, um, and then I uh, became an operations manager uh, in an organization. But eventually, I ended up starting a business with a friend, and that business kind of brought both of my passions together. It was writing uh, histories for organizations. So I was able to market that to organizations and and research and write and put together their story into coffee table books. And, and that's what I did for much of my career. Interesting. Yeah, I've, I've spoken for a bit, so. No, that was wonderful. Yeah, no worries. I love it. I just like hearing all that. Again, since I had you for a class, I, it's just, it's, it's really nice, like hearing your story. Mm-hmm. So between that, um, you weren't being a professor wasn't your goal at that time, right? Mm -hmm. How did how did like your business, right? You you do your business a little bit, and I think you were saying in class that you ended up leaving, correct? Or yeah. So so uh, when I graduated from ASU, I thought there's no way I'm going back to school. I never would have thought about graduate school. Honestly, again, I didn't really know what graduate school was at that point in time. Um, but so I, I launched this business with my friend and we had it, we ran it from 1987 until about 1999 when he, he was for a very long time, not really actively involved in the business. Uh, but in 1999, he decided to come back into the business and become involved in the operations again. And at that point, I thought, okay, his personality, he's going to want to be a leader of the company. And I had been leading the company for um, a dozen years by that point. And so I thought, you know what, maybe it's time for me to just sort of bow out and you can, you can buy me out and I'll maybe do something else. And that's when I, I took a little time and tried to think about what, what I wanted to do with my life. And uh, it, was a, it was wonderful that I had that opportunity to be able to do that because not a lot of people do. But at that moment in time in my life, I think it was about 37 at the time, I was able to just take a pause and uh, reassess and figure out the next career for me. Interesting. And, and what was that next career for you, whether it be you know pursuing education or uh, job wise? 
Yeah. So at that point in time, I thought, you know, being a professor might be a really interesting thing. You know, I thought maybe I had summers off. Little did I know. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I thought I thought it might be kind of interesting. And so uh, I wasn't sure what I wanted to study. And since it had been so long since I had taken any classes and I had only taken one comm course uh, as an undergraduate, in my freshman year, um, I took a couple classes at ASU in the evening and um, tried to see if communication was what I was interested in. And uh, it turned out I, I was, you know, I thought communication is kind of at the crux of almost everything. And that's why I thought I, I really want to study that more. And so at first I thought I just want to get a master's degree and see what that was like. And uh, so I applied to a couple of places, got accepted at San Diego State and University of New Mexico. Um, and I chose the University of New Mexico um, just because it seemed for me a, a better fit, a better better uh, academic program for what I was interested in. So I went over there and, and did my master's degree in a year and a half. And by the first six months, I had caught the research bug, as they say. I learned what research was all about, and I decided I really loved it. And then that's when I started looking for a PhD program to get a PhD and become a professor. And I eventually went back to Arizona State, but instead of being in the business school this time, I was in communication and uh, graduated with my PhD in uh, 2005. And uh, yeah, went on to um, uh, take my first job as an assistant professor at Purdue University in Indiana. And I was there for a couple of years before coming to uh, UCSB. Interesting. And how intense are PhD programs? <laughs> um, yes, they are. Um, they are. It, it's. It's. You have to immerse yourself totally in them. Um, Fortunately, that's kind of my uh, my personality. When I get involved in something, I do it a hundred percent, and so I just got used to working all the time, and you know, working weekends and evenings, and that's kind of what you have to do in a PhD program to to get through it. Um, so I did a PhD in in four years, and. Uh, uh, you know, once you get your PhD in a place, you you can't get employed there. Um, they call that academic incest. You cannot be employed there. Uh, so I knew I was going to have to move out of state because there weren't any uh, good professor jobs in organizational communication um, at any place except at Arizona State in the state. So I knew I was going to have to move out of state when I when I uh, got my PhD. And what kind of communication did you focus on? In your PhD program, yeah, that that's a good question because I, I I looked at various you know possibilities. You know, there's interpersonal, and there's there's group, and there's health, and there's organizational, and so on. And I kind of thought health was interesting, um, and I might have done that. But given my background uh, with a, an education in business, and also you know having um, done a a job had a business that looked at organizations. I thought, well, you know, I kind of know quite a bit about organizations. So why don't I look at organizational communication? And that, that was a really good fit. Um, that's sort of why I chose that. And what is organizational communication? Because before taking your class, I didn't even know what it was and I'm a comm major. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good question. And I, you know, I can give you some quick, short answers to that. Um, quick and short answers are that I personally focus on workplace interaction. I look at communication in the workplace. Um, my focus area is socialization, meaning how people uh, enter into organizations and become integrated as full members in organizations. Um, so that's one way of looking at it. Another quick way of saying it is that uh, it's kind of like management, but focusing on the communication element of it. But truly, it, it is more than that. It's a lot of people who are in orgcom are, as we call it, um, are really interested in what is the nature of organizations. And so they're interested in what makes an organization an organization. Because they are different 
from social collectives. They're different from a group of people waiting at a bus stop. They're different from uh, two people having a conversation about planning a party. They they are something unique and into to themselves. I mean, we used to think of an organization and we'd picture in our minds a building. I don't think many of us do that anymore because so much of what organizations do is interact with people via technology that doesn't involve any physical location. Um, So I am also interested in what makes an organization an organization. And I'm working on a book right now um, that is looking at that very thing. There's a theoretical model. It's called the four flows of the communicative constitution of organizing. And essentially, I know that's a mouthful, but essentially what it says is that organizations are essentially communication and that there are four types, or we call them flows, of communication that come together that make organizations. So one of them is that um, membership negotiation. So it's it's talking about what membership in this organization is and what it means. Another is self-structuring. So that is setting up your mission and your goals and your organization chart and setting up rules and policies. So that's another type of communication that makes an organization an organization. The third is activity coordination. That's pretty easy to understand. We act, we coordinate what we do so that we can work together. But the last one is institutional positioning, and that's positioning the organization relative to other organizations, uh, communicating who we are as an organization, what we do, and um, you know how we're different. Uh, that's communicating to people within the organization and externally as well. So it's those four kinds of communication that have to be present to make an organization, and they all work together to make an organization what it is, to make it uniquely, uh, well, unique. Um, and so anyway, we're, we're, we're putting together a book that is uh, advancing that theoretical perspective to talk about uh, the communicative constitution of organizing. Yeah. What's the process and how does it feel <laughs> to kind of discover new theories, right? Yeah. Well, it's fun. Frankly, it, it, it's fun. It's fun to think about, you know, what things are happening in society that we can define, that we can label, that we can um, better understand so that that others can, you know, somehow benefit from that understanding. It, it's, it's fun to be able to attach yourself to that because then you become an expert at it and you can help and advise people and guide people on that. So, you know, I'm doing that with this four flows, but I've also done that with my socialization research as well. Um, so one area of my socialization work that is oldest is I look at the uh, the six processes that enable people to become integrated into organizations. And you can define what those six processes are. And if an organization is trying to set up a socialization program, you might want to make sure that you're covering all six of those things to help ensure that people, that newcomers become fully integrated and feel like they're a part of the organization. So, you know, that that's kind of fun and interesting and can be helpful. I think. But some of the other areas of my research where I've really advanced um, theorizing is has to do with vocational anticipatory socialization. And that's uh, how, how individuals choose careers. How do they get information about careers? How do they make that selection of, of careers? What influences that process as well? That is fascinating. Yeah, you're just saying that. I'm like, whoa, that does make sense. Uh, being in your organizational membership class, like I could see the the students eventually going off and becoming these people that are like, all right, they're going through these steps that I had learned previously or studying that, right? Very interesting because that helps, like you said, retain people, uh, make people work harder and, and things of those aspects to help the organization grow and be healthy, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and I think, so you bring up a couple of things there. I think what we also do in organizational communication is that we're really focused on the individual and individuals, members of organizations. So workers, maybe in a lot of cases, workers, but like 
in management, if I were in management, and a lot of what I do is very similar to what management scholars do, but a lot of management scholars really traditionally have looked more from the organizational perspective. In OrgCom, we kind of take the, the worker perspective. So we're looking at it in a slightly different way. But hopefully, we're helping those workers to be able to feel more comfortable, to be able to feel more integrated and that they they really belong. So when I teach my classes, I, I like to um, you know go through these things because I, I think that it helps college graduates when they're going out in their first career position. But I also know that most of those students in my classes are going to end up being in manager positions. And so hopefully they'll be able to see it from that other side as well. Yeah. Mentioning career paths for people that are going to graduate, right? Did you want to talk a little bit about that? You were, you were you're mentioning, right? Uh, as far of like how people choose their careers and, and even feeling lost and things yeah. like that. Yeah. You know, I, at this time of year, and especially in the spring term, I, I really like to talk to students about, about not feeling the pressure of graduation because so many of them, you know, come to my office and they say, I'm graduating and I don't really know what I'm going to do. Uh, I don't have a job lined up. And they're absolutely paralyzed and they're nervous. They're scared. They're kind of freaked out. They think that they should have it all figured out and should have a, a job lined up. Um, but you know, it, it just really doesn't always work that way. And in fact, I think it rarely works that way uh, for, for a lot of students. Um, the first job that you take is probably not going to be a job that you're going to have for a long period of time, but it's a start. It's a stepping, a stepping stone. Um, maybe their parents would really like them to have that career job lined up, but I want them to feel like they shouldn't put all that pressure on them because it is a process. You're learning along the way and you're trying to figure out what it is you really do enjoy. You know, do you like being in a big office or do you, would you prefer something more entrepreneurial? You know, what kind of work uh, schedule or flexibility fits you? Do you like working a job where it's a very structured kind of eight to five Monday through Friday thing where you can walk out the door? at the end of the day and forget the job? Or are you more someone who likes more flexibility and would prefer um, to, you know, kind of come and go as you please, uh, not be so concerned about wanting to do something in the middle of the day that's, you know, more personal, but you don't mind working at night or you don't mind maybe working a bit on the weekends. So it's, it's kind of up to us to sort of figure out a lot of those kinds of things. Uh, and, um, uh, so, so young people kind of have to figure that out early on, but I also think it's important to, to consider a lot of young people and my research indicates that a lot of young people get advice to do what they love. That's the most common thing that, that young people get from their parents these days, um, and while that's not terribly, you know, that's not bad advice, it's not always terribly great advice because they don't know what they love. They haven't been out there enough to experience it yet. And how do you know if you've not done it? And uh, so I think it's, it's, it's more important to, at this point in time, get exposure, get exposure to as much as possible so that you can learn more about different careers and different workplace settings so that you can start making those choices. Um, you know, there, I, some of my research says that there are three kinds of career frameworks that people have. And what I mean by a framework is what kind of filtering mechanism do you have about what kind of job that you're interested in? So for example, some people are interested in jobs where they think that they would just really love it, where they would enjoy uh, doing the work or being in the environment. So if you have a career and framework that's an enjoyment framework, you're most interested in information that would uh, tell you about jobs that you might be interested in because you like doing those things. The second kind of career framework is an ability framework. And that means that you're more interested in finding out about jobs um, that you think that you have some ability in or skill set that you're really well suited for. So you're mostly looking for a job where you have some skills that you think you can apply. Um, the third one is a goal framework. And a goal framework can be an identity 
that you have in mind that you want, um, which can also be related to income or lifestyle. So some people just get in mind, I want to be an attorney or I want to be a doctor or I want to be a teacher and they just go for it. So any information that they can get that's going to help them to achieve that goal is what they are interested in. And I think learning that about yourself, learning which kind of framework that you have a tendency to, you might you might have a little bit of two of them, but if you are, find out which one is predominant for you, that can that can be a useful kind of um, kind of tool for you to 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 key into early on. That's so funny. Recollecting that from the the class mm-hmm. I took with you, just I remember like my notes, like those three frameworks, and the one that Jacoba was that her name uh-huh, uh-huh. was working like on a fourth one, right? If I'm uh, not mistaken, yes. it was that section, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> And how do you go about doing your research? Yeah, uh, so I'm in social sciences. So uh, there are some people who do experimental designs, and uh, uh, that's not me. Um, I am more someone who likes to talk to people. I do do some surveys. So I do some things through Qualtrics and things like that. Um, but I like to talk to people. I like to do interviews. I like to do focus groups where I have conversations with people to really learn more in depth about their experiences, how and why they choose to do something versus something else. Um, so a lot of my research is, is qualitative types of research, but I have to admit I am considered an expert in mixed methodology. So mixed methods is where you combine qualitative and quantitative research. And so I do do some of that too. So oftentimes when I do interviews, I also do a second phase, which would maybe have a survey that might assess some of the things that I found in the qualitative portion of of my research to to affirm whether or not the phenomenon that I think I found in the interviews, um, how widespread is that? So I can do that with, with more quantitative research. Yeah, and how does it feel to be an, an actual expert at something? Do you ever like think back and like, whoa, like I am one of the leading factors in in this type of um, you know you know what um, topic, right? You know, that's interesting because I remember early on thinking when someone called me an expert on something, I thought, oh, I'm not an expert. But, you know, after a while, you kind of realize, yeah, I kind of actually am because a lot of people are doing this and researching this. And I have spent a lot of time doing research on it. You know, you can be an an expert on almost anything. If you're reading a lot of the established research, so things that have already been written and published, and then you go out and explore something just a little bit further, um, you get a lot of knowledge about things and you do become an expert on it as well. So almost anyone can be an expert yeah. on something if you want to, you know, devote yourself to to a particular topic. Yeah. And in regards to being a professor, what would you say are some of the biggest challenges you face as a professor? Time. Time is one of the biggest challenges. Um, just because faculty are are kind of we have we have so many different hats that we wear so you know that on the student side students see us as as essentially teachers or instructors and and certainly that's a big part of our job and we have and we do spend a lot of time you know before class starts preparing a syllabus developing the assignments figuring out the readings for the course you know developing exams and that sort of thing and then of course doing the lectures where they see us um, so that is a big part of our jobs but there's also the research side. And if you're at a research university like UCSB, um, frankly, they expect you to do a lot of research, at least as much research as you spend on time teaching. And so, um, you know, to be able to fit that in and do that at the same time where you're also doing service, because you got to do service to your department and your campus and your discipline. Uh, and then they, they also consider professional activities, which is a whole other thing, like getting grants and awards and so on. Um, but time is the biggest factor um, because we're pulled in lots of different directions at different times. So like for an example, um, we are in what I would consider the first full week of summer. Well, maybe we're in week two, but I, I got a, a, an email from a student who's going to be taking a summer class with me. 
And the class starts in three weeks and he wanted me to send him the syllabus. And I was thinking, are you kidding me? I just finished this last this last quarter and I'm not going to have a chance to do anything on the syllabus till probably like five days before. And that's because I've just taught this class. So I can, I don't have to spend so much time, but I I think that students probably assume that we use the same syllabus and the same assignment from term to term, but it just doesn't necessarily work that way. Um, So I'll I'll be doing that kind of last minute. Um, But right now what I'm really focused on is my research. So, so I'm, that's what I'm devoting my next couple of weeks to. Yeah. Do you think that ever gets in the way of, of you teaching or vice versa? Um, does research get in the way of teaching? Yes. It, yes, it, it does. Um, because you want to be able to devote, you know, a lot of time to research because we're passionate about our research, but, but the two go hand in hand so well. Um, you know, I, I, I often think about why is it that we have researchers who are teaching, teaching courses. And I think the the thing to keep in mind is, you know, if you ever learn something new and you find it fascinating and you find it interesting, what do you want to do? You like to be able to share it with others. You like to be able to talk about it to other people. That is what we get to do here as professors at a research university. So I'm learning something new in my research. I'm discovering new things. I'm making connections. And then I get to talk to my students about it. I get to explain it in a way that hopefully um, communicates my passion for the topic and why I think it's so important and interesting. And so they work together. They work together well. Yeah, I completely agree because... I remember seeing your name, Karen Karen Myers, on the article. I was just like, "Whoa!" Like she she wrote this, you know. She's an expert in this, and if I have any questions on the article, she could obviously tell me because she knows it better than anyone. So, in comparison, because I went to a CC, like they they know the article. I'm assuming because they they've probably read it, they assigned it. But it's so different when you have your professor's name on it because they're the ones that wrote it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, that's so true. Although we have to be careful because no one wants to take a class that's totally your own research. Yeah, yeah. No, I know we had a lot of good ones. Like I was going to salute you on. A, I believe his name's Kramer. Is that his last name? Kramer. Kramer. Mm-hmm. That was an excellent book. It wasn't too like tedious or rigorous to understand the terminology, but it was still very like academic and like it helped you understand. Right. It was very wonderful. Like it was perfect middle ground where it was still like challenging you, but yet you were still able to understand things. And I was like so happy with that book and just reading things like that. I'm like, whoa, solid. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a he's someone I know in the field, and he's a he's a good scholar. But he he writes well, and I think that, that was um, pitched just to the right audience. There, the, the book is getting a little bit old, but none of those concepts have really changed. And so the fact that it's getting a little older means that it's getting a little cheaper for students to yeah. buy, which is what I love. Yeah, I really enjoyed that read. And we had some really good articles in there as well. Um, some of the occupations talking about like women in one of the articles, correct? Like sometimes women go to certain professions, um, unfortunately, or what they call pink collar uh, yeah. jobs and stuff. Yeah. yeah, where they don't tend to get paid as well, uh, which is an unfortunate thing. But, you know, so much of, again, Again, getting back to that vocational anticipatory socialization, a lot of what they hear about uh, tends to be those pink collar kinds of jobs. And so they get kind of lured into them and uh, they oftentimes don't realize that there, there's a price to pay for getting into, you know, jobs that, uh, well, I, I, I won't name them, but, but jobs that women traditionally go into. Unfortunately, you know, things like education and healthcare tend to tend to also go into those pink collar areas and they shouldn't be paid less. I mean, we we should be paying people who educate our kids or do preschools and and take care of people who are ill more than what they're being paid. And so that's unfortunate, but um, yeah, so women tend to go into those pink collar jobs. Yeah, you even, we discussed dirty workers as well, like the type of occupation or work that you do also affects how people see you, how you see yourself and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, so for in the United States, of course, our occupations are a big part of our identities. 
when you introduce yourself, you oftentimes say what you do. I mean, that's who you are, and that's how other people know you and judge you and think of you. Uh, but there are certain kinds of occupations that are known as dirty work. And dirty work is uh, when something is socially, morally, or physically dirty in some respect. Um, and those, so those can be things like, um, uh, you know, a janitor. Those can be someone like someone who cleans bedpans in a, in a hospital or a nursing home. It could be a, a funeral director, or it could even be a firefighter, or uh, someone who works in a slaughterhouse, or a garbage collector. Obviously, society needs people who do this work. We value what they do, but, but we still sort of judge them in a certain type of a way because of the nature of the work that they do that, that is dirty. And so people who do those kinds of jobs oftentimes have to walk around and deal with a certain amount of a stigma or a taint associated with being a person in that occupation. And so uh, I think it's kind of interesting to, to, to study how do they deal with that? What do they do? And what we know is that they oftentimes socialize together. So dirty workers socialize together, oftentimes in the same occupational groups, um, because they feel comfortable with each other. They know, you know, each other. They don't feel judged in the same way, um, and and that that helps them to feel, um, I, I guess, good and have good self esteem, positive self esteem. Yeah, it, it made it seem in the article, it's like they were in the in-group as opposed to the other way around, which the other way around, they would think they're in the in-group being like, oh, they're dirty workers. But they're all like, oh, yeah, we are dirty workers. That's who we are. You need us, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you also are very interested and you put a big emphasis on generational differences in the workplace. Would you like to go ahead and talk a little bit about those? Yeah, that's another interesting area of my research. Um so I was hired uh, a number of years ago uh, on a consulting project uh, for a, an organization, a governmental organization, and they were having some challenges uh, with the newer generation of workers who was coming in and working for the organization. And so the head of the organization um, asked me to come in and do some assessment and deal with the issue and try and figure out how they could help to improve the relationships between the, what they might call old timers and the, and the newcomers in the organization. And so that's when I started to get interested in generational differences. So we're talking about differences between um, baby boomers, uh, Generation X, um, millennials, and then the newest generation, Generation Z. And what's interesting is they have different values and expectations that um, they have acquired as a result of when they were raised. The things that happened in society, the technological advances that were occurring in society, the recessions, the political nature of what was going on, um, all kinds of things that have happened in their lifetime have, have caused them to have certain attitudes and expectations. So like, for example, um, I, I guess I'm technically, I'm kind of in the middle, but, but I guess I'm more along the lines of a baby boomer myself. Uh, so baby boomers were um, born between 1946 and some say 1960, some say 1964. But um, a larger group, uh, a cohort of, of individuals, very optimistic, um, post-World War II, lots of growth in the economy, lots of opportunity because they were a big cohort. They were used to getting a lot of attention. Um, they're very uh, uh, political in, in how they deal with things. Um, but in the workplace, they have a lot of characteristics. Like, for example, uh, if you want to get something done with a baby boomer, the first thing you do is you call a meeting. Because that's how baby boomers see that things get done. Call a meeting. Uh, if you want to reward them, give them an award. They love that. Um, but they also like to be praised for, for paying their dues. Now, let's contrast that with Generation Z, the young people now who are entering the workforce. Um, Generation Z was brought up you know, right after 
typically right after uh, 9-11 happened. Uh, the economy uh, took a huge downturn when they were young. Uh, they obviously have, have come of age during the time of the pandemic. Lots of uncertainty in the country politically and so on. And so as a result, um, they're a little bit skeptical about things. Certainly, we can understand why, given all that they have been through. Um, they're a little more entrepreneurial than a lot of other cohorts are. Um, but at the same time, they would like to find an organization that might that they feel might nurture them and take care of them um, because they haven't felt uh, a certain level of comfort. They, they want to feel safe. They want to feel that harbor of, of safety in an organization. We also know things like uh, that they, they probably are not going to stay in an organization for very long. They, they tend to job hop because they see that as a way to advance. Rather than staying in an organization and attempting to advance in the organization, they see other opportunities at other organizations. And in part, that's because of technology. We've made it so much more transparent than it used to be. So it's easier to job hop to get more learning and opportunities. And learning is also a big priority for Generation Z. Uh, we also know things like they, they don't like to use the telephone. Sorry, I made a phone call to you the other day, but they don't like to use the telephone. Uh, they oftentimes feel very uncomfortable with email. Um, just post, uh, putting together an email is, is, uh, kind of, uh, daunting for a lot of them. Um, they obviously do other things, uh, text messaging, but a lot of the social media that, that their parents and grandparents use, they, they want to stay away from certainly. Yeah. And you mentioned that they really like feedback as well, right? That was them or was that millennials? Well, it's actually both. Mm -hmm. Um, Both millennials and Gen Z want feedback. Um, Millennials were notorious because a lot of their bosses uh, in in the workplace uh, said, you know, they they constantly want my feedback. They want to know how they're doing. They want, they they constantly want check-ins. And for baby boomers and Gen X, the one that's in the middle there, um, they they are not into giving a whole lot of feedback all the time. But so, you know, if you want to have good relationships with coworkers, you got to learn a little bit about those generational differences so that you can make some accommodations so that so that you can hopefully work together in a productive way. Um, that's why I like people to, to not look at these cohort differences as stereotypes as much as these are tendencies. And if we understand them a little bit and we understand a bit about, you know, why they are the way they are, you know, because of their, their life experiences, um, we can better you know, facilitate good relationship building. We can understand them better. You can um, understand why those Gen Z people, you know, need that feedback, uh, why they they want to feel a little bit of more safety in the organization than maybe the millennials did or previous generations. Yeah. And I'm curious, when you tell people that you're a professor, how do people react to that? Oh. Just because I know we've been talking about like dirty workers and pink collar, like how, how people react to them. How do people react to you as a professor? Do they feel flustered? Yeah, no, I would be really interested to hear how how uh, young people, students perceive what a professor is. I mean, I could answer the question, but but how do you think they see professors? Um me personally, I, I can't speak for all students, but yeah, me personally, I like, it's very admirable. I see them and I'm like kind of in awe because I've taken a transfer class and I've, that one, they talk a lot about research and what it's like to get a PhD and become a professor. Mm-hmm. So just understanding all the rigorous work that they had to put in to be where they're at now, I'm like, whoa, like each and every one of them for the most part in that are professors here at UCSB have a PhD. That means they have an emphasis or specialization in something. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's like, wow, it's an expert. It's someone that has put in so much time and hard work and dedication into something. And they're right here as a human. It's like, it's insane <laughs> from my perspective. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you. That That's, that's <laughs> really interesting. Um, well, I think most people think of professors as teachers. Mm. You know, I think that that's what a lot of people assume a professor's job is. And they, they really kind of think that in the summer, 
we're just off um, or around holidays. They, they don't see that other part of it, uh, which is, is, is kind of amusing. And sometimes I try to explain it, but mostly I just yeah, let them think what they think and that's okay. It doesn't, I don't have to, to educate them on that. Um, but, you know, there are different kinds of professors too. Mm-hmm. So there's people at research universities like here at UCSB, um, but there are schools that are, you know, maybe very small liberal arts schools. My sister-in-law used to teach uh, at a very small uh, college in Idaho, and she was not expected to do research at all. But she taught uh, four or five classes every semester, and they were on the semester system. Um, So she had uh, lots of different students and lots of different classes. Um, She mostly did have summers off. so it it can differ. It can differ. But then there's people in the middle, the the Cal State uh, schools that that are also expected to do a little bit of research, not a lot, but a little bit of research, um, but also to be strong teachers. So you know it really does vary. Um, so when I tell people that I'm a professor, a lot of them just really think that I'm that I'm a teacher. Interesting. Even if you were to say like, oh, at UCSB, because when I when I tell people that even as a student, oh, I go to UCSB, they're like, they like, I don't know, they look at me different or they they know they recognize the name is what I sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think those people know more about the university mm-hmm. than a lot of people in general. If, if they if they recognize that about UCSB, I guess a lot of people that I, you know, introduce myself to don't necessarily know what UCSB is. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. And, oh, this is a perfect question for you because <laughs> I, I, stu- I get this from students all the time, but what is the quarter system like for professors? We don't like it. <laughs> I, I think students, undergraduate students like it because they are finished and done with the class in 11 weeks. Um, Faculty and, and grad students too are, are not not so thrilled um, because that means that we're constantly gearing up for the next term. So, uh, you know, like for example, spring break. We don't really get a spring break. We're just gearing up for the next terms classes. It, it goes awful fast, and so there's you know three different quarters that we're typically gearing up for. There can be some advantages to it. So like in my department, for example, we teach four classes a year. So that means that for two quarters, technically, we're supposed to be teaching just one course, which is is nice. Uh, But then in the third quarter, we're teaching um, two classes, which means we have more work. But, you know, it's okay. It, it, it's okay. We learn to deal with it. But but if we were able to teach on a semester system, we'd be able to get more in depth in some of the topics. And that, of course, we, we would love to do. And for grad students, it really serves better because then they can get more in-depth understanding as well. So yeah, undergrads love it. And the rest of us, not so much. Yeah, that's interesting because I know I'm I'm pretty sure, I don't know if they still do it, but UCR is on the semester system, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Yeah, UCR, and also um, I think there's other two, two uh, Berkeley, mm, no and I think Merced. Oh. So I think those are the three campuses uh, that are on the semester system, and mm. uh, yeah. Is there a reason behind it, or is it just? Um, I think there were some reasons um, in the beginning. I I've heard some rumors about you know why I don't. I don't know for sure, but changing it is is really really hard. Mm. So I'm I'm pretty confident that's not going to happen. Yeah, it, it is very intense. Uh, just as a student going in, the first week is very like kind of chill. There are some readings assigned sometimes, and then the second week it just starts. And then by week four or five, you have a midterm, and then that's when it starts it's to ramp up. Fast. You got your paper, and then and you only have so much. Yeah leeway right you there's like usually a paper a midterm and a final that you're graded on there's no really like homework in between as in like cc and i know i think cal states always assign homework but at ucsb i usually don't get homework it's more like you do the reading and then you go to class 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that that is part of being at a research university. Mm. We, we just certain have certain expectations that you'll be learning it along the way without, without the requirement of homework. Although if you're in my class, you're going to be doing other little activities along the way. So. <laughs> yeah. I like, I really enjoyed your class. I enjoyed, um, what was it that we did? We did some like activities in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm forgetting one that Oh, I really enjoy the way you do your notes because you give us the notes and then with some like blank spaces and that allows us to like, then those blank spaces, I fill them in with the, like a bold. Mm-hmm. So then I, I really, I like see what uh, you emphasize on and it's really easy to remember and like put in uh, later on like the study guide or whatnot. Great. Great. Yeah. I think that the notes are really helpful mm-hmm. too, because I remember as a student taking down everything is is a lot. And sometimes I'd get so focused on taking down everything that I I wouldn't really understand it. And so having having pages of notes that you can just fill in words here or there, I think you can listen more actively and hopefully hopefully learn the information a little easier. Yeah. Um is there anything else you want to touch on that that I might have missed? You know, or about 50 minutes. Okay. Okay. Uh, not, not so much. I, I think that, you know, I, I just would like to emphasize that, that, um, you know, regardless of what kind of background you come from and, um, you know, what your life experience is, if you, if you come from a, um, disadvantaged background at all, you, you can still, you can still, you know, attain success if you work really hard at it and you're willing to devote your life to it and willing to make sacrifices. I, I, I would have to say that I, I don't have a lot of work-life balance. I admit that. Um, but had I not worked this hard in my life, I don't think I would be where I am today. And um, I'm really happy with all that I've, I've achieved and I'm kind of at the point in my life where I can, I don't want to say rest on my laurels because that, that won't happen, but, but I can feel good and confident about what I've done and feel like I'm able to, you know, help graduate students, educating them, but also hopefully impart some good, useful information to my, to my undergrads. I think that being able to talk about research, talk about theories, but talk about theories in a way that helps them to understand why it's important to them in their own lives and how they can apply the information that they're learning in the classes to their own lives is really important. And I think that we need to to take some time to really consider that as we're preparing our classes. And I, and I hope I've been able to do that a bit along the way. I think you have taken your course and going to work, I'm just like, whoa, like the generational gap, right? And all these these things that I had learned in your in your class are really seen in my life. And it's I'm really impressed that you're able to do that because there's unfortunately some professors that aren't the best at, at showing that, you know, and it's kind of sad. But for you doing that, it, it's very impactful because you feel really accomplished. You're like, wow, like this makes you feel good because I learned this and I'm actually applying it. And you mentioned a TA, like I know undergrads usually see TAs as kind of a helper. What behind the scenes as someone that, you know, looks over them, what is a TA? Oh, that's a really good question. Teaching assistants, TAs, as you call them, um, are graduate students. So they are either in the process of earning their master's degree or PhD. Um, And so in our program, you can only enter if your intent is to get a PhD. Now, some people come in with master's degrees already. A lot of them don't, so they earn their master's degree along the way, so they stay an extra year to do that. But they are students themselves, and so uh, they are taking courses. They're working towards their degrees, um, but they're employed part-time, 20 hours a week, uh, as teaching assistants, sometimes research assistants. We don't have as many of those in our department as teaching assistants, but sometimes they're working with professors who are employing them to do research with them. Uh, But it's a -a 20-hour-a-week job, and they get paid a small amount. It's a very small amount um, to do that work. But one of the other benefits is that they are not paying tuition. So part of the agreement is that they do work and trade for for um, for getting their tuition paid and, and the small stipend. 
I think that's fair. Tuition's expensive. Oh, it's crazy yeah. expensive. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. But that's that's typically um, that's what happens in a PhD program. Mm. A lot of programs that are just master's programs, you don't get that kind of setup. Um, you still have to pay your <laughs> tuition. So if you get if you think you're going into a grad program and you're not really sure about a PhD or a master's degree, if you're pretty sure you want to get a PhD, go for the PhD because you'll get your tuition paid for and you'll likely be employed. Too. Master's degree, sometimes you get that, but it's it's a lot less frequently. Interesting. And yeah. another question that I have for you, are you tenured? Yes. Oh, yes. How was that feeling when you achieved tenure? Because I, <laughs> I know how difficult it is to reach that point. And the other professor I talked about, I think it was her first year. So she talked about a little bit about the process, but you are actually tenured. So do you want to explain how you felt when you reached that point? It's been a while ago. Uh, so yeah, usually. So I came in. Um, I came here in January of two thousand and seven. So technically, I was at uh, Purdue a year and a half. So yeah, it's usually about six years. Uh, your first six years, you're working towards getting tenure. You're an assistant professor, and you put together your case, all of your publications, your teaching evaluations, and assessments. Uh, from people out in the field. So people who are org comm specialists at other places write letters about your research to the university, to UCSB, and talk about the impact your research is making on the field. And all of that comes together and your department first, the dean, we have a committee on academic personnel on campus, uh, the uh, executive vice chancellor uh, looks at it. Anyway, they all they all review it and they make a decision about whether or not you deserve tenure. Um, you know, I... A lot of people stress a lot about tenure. I have to confess, and this is, I hope, not going to come off conceited, but I was never worried about getting tenure because I knew I was doing absolutely everything I could. And I was getting some good publications and got a couple of awards. And so I was never worried about that part of it. Um, but the interesting thing is at UCSB, we almost go up for tenure every few years here. We are unlike almost any other university in the world in that we have to go up for merit reviews every two or three years, which is almost like going up for tenure. Um, that's how we stay to be a top university because all of our faculty have to keep staying on target and keep pumping out the, the research and keep being good uh, um, teachers as well. So, um, so after you're an associate professor, that's what happens after you get tenure. So you're usually that about four years. Then you go up for a full professor. Full professor is just professor, okay? Um, and so I'm a full professor. Um, and uh, in our system, we have steps all the all along the way. So I am I am now uh, Professor Three. They call it P three. So I'm I'm getting up in the ranks there. But we have to go up for review all the time. So getting tenure was great, but I kind of expected it. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful, and I agree. You put in a lot of hard work <laughs> as like reading your articles and, and the way you are passionate in your class. Like you know, no doubt that you put in hard work. You know. And so you, you said you got your PhD in 2005. How did it feel when you got hired at UCSB? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, well, I'll start with when I got hired at Purdue. It felt really good because um, that's a really good university. And that is where people commonly say that organizational communication was founded. So... Most of the uh, org comm professors uh, in this department were at some point in time at Purdue University, which is kind of interesting. Uh, we, we tend to call this Purdue West. <laughs> um, but uh, it felt really, really good because that was an amazing job to get right out of the chute. And so I felt really, really great about that. And had I not had that really amazing job, I don't know that I could have come here. 
uh, at UCSB or been hired. If I had gone to a lesser university in any way, I don't think I would have been hired here. It felt great to be able to come to UCSB. Uh, you know, who wouldn't want to live at this great place? Who wouldn't want to be um, amongst some of the best academics in, in the in the calm discipline? And we really are one of the very best communication departments in the world. So I, I feel very fortunate. That's awesome. And is there anything else you want to leave off on before we uh, end the podcast? It's a, it's 58 minutes. I, I honestly can't think of anything That's else fine to too. say. Yeah, no worries. I feel yeah. like you've, you said a lot of good things. Yeah. Yeah, heck yeah. yeah. We well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. It's been fun having a conversation with you. I hope, I hope uh, that it was at least somewhat informative to your audience. Yeah.